Uh, so the talk tonight, the title is <clears throat> The Counterintuitive Ground of Spiritual Practice. The Counterintuitive Ground. And uh, it's all paradoxical. And I'll go through a number of paradoxes, of counterintuitive principles that the Dharma lies on. But it's very interesting to ask, us the, ask the question of why it's all counterintuitive. Why isn't it, of course, and then just an immediate ascension of what we've already done, just in addition to what we've already done. We just we know our way. This is, of course, we've been doing this our whole life. Let's just move it in that direction. Why is it counterintuitive? Why does it feel cross-grained to our habits and conditioning? See, that's an important question. As I mentioned, that many of the facets of Dharma will resonate very deeply, affirmatively with you, but they're counterintuitive. They're against the ways that we have seen the world or know the world to be, and certainly against the strategies that we employ to accomplish and get what we want. So you have to understand, if you use the metaphor of a horse with blinders, so that the vision of the horse is just out in front, and they don't have, the horse does not have a 180 degree vista. It's enclosed within the blinders. And the blinders really obstruct or distort the whole vision of what the horse could see. And that's the point of the blinders, is to keep it narrowed sufficiently so that it doesn't get distracted and move in a different direction than what it sees in front of itself. So too, are we, do we condition in blinders within ourselves? Blinders that only see what we have allowed ourselves to see. No one is doing this to us, but we have placed blinders on ourselves. And the, there are certain principles or certain truths within us that we just assume to be true and we move forward within. We don't test them, we don't question them, we just assume them and move them forward. And that unconscious willingness to look at some of the assumptions that we base our life upon distorts where we are conscious, right? So what we are unwilling to look at or see distorts what we are willing to look at or see. And therefore, when we enter Dharma practice, what we're attempting to do is to take those blinders off. And as more and more of that vantage begins to be seen, as we, as we begin to see the 360 view, from the 360 view, what we have been seeing up until that time, the very limited, let us say, 90% angle of the view, we realize was distorted all along because we never included the other 270 degrees. And at the basis of that distortion is what we believe about ourselves. We assume we know what is true about ourselves and we act in accordance with that as if it were true. And we try to protect and defend that in every way possible. But few of us are really willing to rediscover or re-associate uh, ourselves 
with what we have assumed to be true and ask genuine questions about it once more. And the willingness to do that is really the heart of Dharma practice. Now, I don't want to take away from people who are working in a different direction. There is a foundation on which that willingness to see from the 360 vantage point has to be uh, created. And that foundation is one of self-sufficiency, one of inward confidence and stability of heart. And much of, a, of our Dharma practice has to do with solidifying ourselves sufficiently so that we have the courage, we have the self-reliance, we have the disposition to be able to open up the view and to look forth from an, into and on, upon that new vantage point. Okay? So no one is wasting their time here. Everyone is building towards either the foundation or beginning to open up. And usually, both of those are happening simultaneously. But I am going to take you for a moment, if you'll come with me, into a different vantage point. I'm going to have us move, have a foretaste, have a sense of what is possible in Dharma. Now, we all realize that we are a package deal. We have a lot of labels, a lot of self-definitions, a lot of images about ourselves, a lot of noise in the mind that keeps all of this activated, keeps it defined, keeps us very solidly in place. And then, if we bring our attention back into ourselves, which I hope you're doing as I speak, just bring it back into ourselves and ask a different level of question, not how I define myself, not the noise that has led to those definitions, but the existence itself around which those definitions spin. What is that existence? What is the existence of, of I? Not the definitions I give that existence, but what is the existence itself? The sense of it. And to know that, we have to be very quiet, to access that. And it's not formed. It's not concrete. It's not word defined. Some have called it presence. I like the word existence because existence doesn't diminish us at all. All of us exist. We know that. It's how we define that existence that's the troubling component of it. It's the labels we place on that existence. Existence itself is without blemishes. And if we can just give or call ourselves back so that we honor our existence, 
the journey of Dharma is the journey from the self-definition we have offered the existence to the bare fact of existence. And even if this is beyond your comprehension, still you can sense it. There's not a person in here that can't sense the possibility, the the proximity of something very close and at hand. Now, as that sense of existence becomes more predominant, the sense of I, which is the egoic definition of what that existence is to me through my history and memory, as the other, as the existence grows in its dominance, the sense of I becomes very quiet, limited in perspective, and very empty in its reference point. And some people get frightened rightly or wrongly, they get frightened because they sense something is being taken away from them. What is being taken away is your ideas about existence, not existence. Existence can never be taken away. And therefore you can sense that really nothing important is ever given up in Dharma is ever asked to be given up. Nothing important. And that everything that is conceptual, that is idea-based, that is what blocks existence. And as we see the untruth of that, as we keep coming up against the limitation of the constant definitions we give ourselves, we voluntarily release ourselves from the definitions that we have asserted. And what's left? This. This. Limitless. Alive radiant, heartfelt. Narayan listed a number of attributes, patience, unlimited. You see? So it's a little confusing as to why we are so protective of the small sense of ourselves when this universe of being awaits us. Now, this is the first counterintuitive fact, and it's very important, very important, even if you're just getting a sense of what I'm saying. This is perhaps the most important counterintuitive fact I will talk about, that We are searching for what we already are. 
That is so important because that search will guide your Dharma practice for the rest of your life. Unless you realize the proximity, the closeness of your own existence. Then it's reachable. And you won't work in a counterintuitive way away from your existence, which most of us do for much of our Dharma life. We work, we go in searching of what we already are. We give it away to proclaimed teachers or gurus as if we didn't have it and he or she did. And that, of course, keeps us from ever claiming the full empowerment of our own existence. So when we have the sense that we're not it, because most of us in this room feel as if we're not sufficient to be the existence that we are pursuing. We don't, we, there's something that doesn't, we're not fulfilled enough, we're not content enough, we're not loving enough, we're not, I mean, we list all these beautiful idealistic terms and you think, oh, I, I, you know, that's like, uh, I can never, I, uh. all of us feel that, even the person who's giving you those terms. And that sense of the lack, the lacking, the great lacking, that keeps us believing, well, yeah, existence is in you or you, but it's not in me. I've got to pursue it sufficiently to claim it. And I have to go through a whole bunch of, I don't know, trials and tribulations to know that I exist. This is crazy. Just let yourself feel the existence. Surround yourself with it. You see, the lack of fulfillment doesn't in any way obstruct the existence. It doesn't distort it. But when you only know yourself from the idea of being unfulfilled, the existence isn't even remotely close to that. The idea and the concept we ascribed to the existence is the complete understanding of our life. And therefore, we are enslaved to the state of mind, whatever that state of mind might be, for whether we are happy or sad, whether we are fulfilled or content or discontent. And so as long as we operate from the state of mind, we will miss the existence completely. And we will work counterintuitively, chasing after our own shadow. Now, when we believe very strongly in the states of mind, you also believe very strongly in the state of yourself. 
who you are that's having these states of mind. And the way that most of our lives have unfolded for decades has lived in accordance to getting over these states of mind, nourishing them, having a different state of mind come more often, the happiness state as opposed to the depression state. And we go through workshops and figure out all kinds of strategies in order to rearrange ourselves sufficiently so that we'll be happier. There's nothing wrong with that. It just doesn't get to the point. That's all. It misses the point. The point is that existence is there regardless of the state of mind. It's unaffected by the state of mind. And as long as we weigh or lean towards the state of mind, we miss the existence. But just the opposite is true as we start leaning towards the existence, and leaning I mean is embodying it, not desiring it or grasping or running after it, the mind states mean less and less to us. Because we see that the whole thing is, it's like missing the air in the room and going around and you know, searching for oxygen. And the strategies that we have learned, and this is a counterintuitive point, the strategies that we have learned to navigate our way through better states of mind, into better states of mind, and away from the ones that we don't like, are counterintuitive to the way of existence, which says, leave yourself alone, there's nothing wrong. You see, from existence's point of view, because it doesn't have the blinders which distort the perception of existence into me and you, from existence's point of view, there is nothing wrong. Because the states of mind don't represent anyone. And to be able to base our aliveness within the existence rather than searching for it as a state of mind, something, an experience I can have of myself, begins to be the sole reason that we practice to embody what we already are. So a second intuitive fact that follows the first is that the assumptions that each state of mind carry with them, very defined, very certain assumptions. I am depressed. I am grieving. I am this. I am that where the whole world holds nothing but that state of reference has to be questioned. If you just live within those facts and you live at whatever that next state of mind is, and let me say you don't have control. 
over what state of mind arises. If you did, you would have had a very nice day today. which may have been part of the day, but likely was not the whole. And so the willingness to look at what, it, what this mind is saying to us, what it's doing to us. And how do we look? Not searching for another state of mind to compensate for this one. I'm feeling this and I wish I were feeling that. But looking right at it. Because you know what? It can't withstand your stare. When we, Ryan mentioned yesterday, the point of practice is to see things the way they are. I add a new phrase. When we see things the way they are, we see things that aren't. When we look, when we really look at the state of mind we're in, the state not acting from the state, the assumption about who we are, not what we have to do to improve that assumption, that state of mind can't withstand the steadiness of your own attention. And like heat off of a griddle, it just like that. If we decide that we're going to move from the state of mind, then I don't know what direction we'll take. But it will be like we'll, we'll have to remain in constant motion, grasping at whatever we see up in front of us, which will always mean something more than what state of mind we're currently in. And we'll be like in an endless jungle gym, one bar after another with no end in sight. Because when the premise is wrong, then so is the syllogism. You can't base a false premise on a true syllogism. If A does not equal B, never mind. <laughs> I did take logic in college, but it, So another, see, when this thing starts, when we really start moving, we have to be sincere. There's no substitute for that. Some of us are very sincere and very new, and some of us are sort of in the play field of Dharma, you know, just kind of seeing what it'll do for me. But at some point, someone who extends their life in the Dharma beyond uh, the early phases of it gets sincere. And as that sincerity grows, you don't want to play around anymore. It becomes very important. It's like there's a honing device on you. And as, as you start feeling that hon, honing in, 
It's like you get very narrowed. You're not going to fly off in some kind of discursive way. And so we ask ourselves the most fundamental questions. What do I really know? You see, that's a counterintuitive question. Well, I know, you know, I passed all my exams. I know a lot. Now, what do I really know? Not what have I been taught. Not what is my intellectual understanding. But what do I really know? That's a counterintuitive question. We've never, many of us have never asked ourselves that question. What do I really know? And that's perhaps the first sincere question that many of us ever pose. And it's a question of discovery. It's not a question of confusion about what I don't know and the ignorance and all. It's really a question that opens the field of discovery. And yet it seems so obvious. I know, you know, I know. And, you know, if I said things change, yeah, everybody would shake their head. Of course things change. But do you, have you realized that fact? Because you're going to have to. Because you will change. Your relationships will change, your life will change, your life will die, your life will end. And unless and until we have realized that fact, as opposed to just knowing it, we won't concede to that point. We won't release ourselves into that knowing. Here's a counterintuitive fact that I think everyone can relate to. I mean, the instructions we give are instructions for existence. They are instructions that point towards existence, not towards acting out of our state of mind. So when an emotion arises, and we'll talk about this likely tomorrow morning, Most of us want to know what to do about those emotions, which is a state of mind question. It's what we have lived with. Of course we're going to ask what to do about those emotions. One of the hardest and most stumbling truths I came upon early on was, what do you mean I don't do something about what I'm feeling, what I'm emoting? What do you mean I leave it alone? What good is that? How's that going to help me? You see, that's a very deep, ingrained issue within state of mind logic. I have to do something to perk myself up. I have to do something to add myself. I have to do something. And I should start nudging myself forward on this. What do you mean, do nothing? So let me just take you into the intricacies of why doing nothing is essential. Besides the fact that existence does not, is not blemished by the state of mind, as I mentioned. The way we continue to go, move through one state of mind into the next is the 
commentary we concede to that state of mind. Every state of mind has a conditioning around it. It has memories associated with it. It has a whole familiarity to us. We either like it or we don't. We have lived through a number of repeated episodes with this state of mind. Take any state of mind. Take one like loneliness. And we are caught in a kind of fear pattern in association with it. All of this requires a mind feed in order to continue to make it work. So thoughts insert their power into the state of mind. Our history with the state of mind arouses it, makes it bigger than what it, see, what it, see, what it is, makes it seem bigger than what it is. Because now it's not just it, it's also all the times we've had it before. So when we do something about it, we're adding another channel of language into it, which actually props it up even further. If we want to see what it is as itself, we have to stop the language infiltrating into the state of mind. Because the thoughts, all they do is support the state of mind. And as the state of mind increases because the thoughts are encouraging it to do so, then that state of mind, that mood, that emotion, that attitude will generate more thoughts. And the thoughts then try to justify the fact that I'm having this state of mind. Why is it that I'm feeling this way? Because Tommy bit me. Then we have doing nothing about the emotion. And you see, you can even feel it. It can't sustain itself. It can't sustain itself. It only sustains itself within the logic of my past. And I don't insert that logic. It falls flat. And so then we begin to see, okay, I see. Do nothing. Do no of course, yeah, of course, do nothing. This, for some of you, is intellectual knowledge. You have to see this for yourself. You have to make it an embodied knowledge for yourself. Each of us are on this path individually, even though we are interconnected. So now I'm going to throw a little deeper <laughs> counterintuitive fact at you. Just to, you know, the first time you saw a shooting star, <gasps> you may not even have known what it was, but wow, right? <gasps> so that's Dharma. We are not in control of our journey. Isn't that amazing? What could I possibly mean by that? But let me show you an example of it. When you're on your breath, and then you're off your breath, did you decide that you wanted to leave your breath? 
Well, you might have decided, but likely you just weren't there. It wasn't within your control. Now you come back to your breath, and you claim that you brought yourself out of thought. But is that what happened? You find yourself out of thought, and then you claim you brought yourself out of thought after the fact. Are you in control of coming out of thought? Are you in control of losing your connection with your breath? Even at the most fundamental teaching technique, you are not in control. But your heart is. The counterintuitive fact is that your mind can't generate the necessary energy or steps to lead you to awakening. But your intentionality can. What you really want, that energy, that coalescing of your energy, is what brings you out of thought and what leads you all along the way. Does that mean we have no part? No. That means our part is to show up completely for whatever is in front of us. That's all. Another counterintuitive fact. Move toward the difficult. That's a kind of a spiritual... truth that you'll hear right on through your training. The conditioning that we live with is to move away from the difficult towards comfort. Even a one-celled amoeba will move away from an electrical whatever. So it's in our cells to move towards comfort. And therefore, when we move towards something and away from something else, we divide life into the haves and have-nots, the goods and the bads. And it's in that movement that the fracturing and distortion of life as we know it to be, with all of its separation, has its root. And therefore, when we're willing to face the difficult, when we're willing to open up to our emotional pain, to some of our physical discomforts. We are moving against the stream of our conditioning. And it's pretty clear, or it should be, it's pretty true that if you're moving against your conditioning, you're moving toward your spiritual journey or with and along with your spiritual journey, into your spiritual journey. Again, why would anyone send you in that direction? Well, let me give you an overview of what happens within the difficult. There is the difficult. It's unpleasant. 
But then again, there's a commentary that accompanies the difficult, that exaggerates that difficulty into fear, anxiety, stress. And you'll never know what you're saying about that difficulty unless you go there and listen. And once you do, you can then have a choice to release the need to intone it with that anxiety. You can just be quiet with it. You can let it stand on its own. And when you do that, the difficulty loses the suffering, loses the contraction, loses the fear response. It may still be unpleasant, but it's without fear. And we'll never know that unless we move into the difficult to see how this thing plays out. But it's counterintuitive. This is a big one. Those of you who are socially engaged may leave me notes on this one. (laughs) This is actually a quote from a ninth century Indian Buddhist sage called Shantideva. We are not here to change the world. The world is here to change us. Counterintuitive. What could I possibly mean by that? Our reactive conditioning, default setting, is to take arms against. But fundamentally, what we're here to do is to concede the truth of reality, not to configure our own. And in order to concede to the truth of reality, we have to release our resistance to reality. And it is our resistance to reality that creates the need to change it. And our willingness to concede that point, to see what reality holds and surrender any objection to what it holds, which does not mean that we don't invite social action. But it's never done in crisis. It's never done in opposition. It's done from clarity. It's done from discernment. But it's an important counterintuitive truth that each of us, if you want to make your life outside of the retreat work, this must be the central means by which you do it. That you are not there to change the situation as much as the you are to concede the truth of the situation and have yourself change it along with it. One final. 
love, which I hope the word resonates with all of us, can only flourish without protection. Many of us feel deprived of it. We feel our hearts closed. Many of us love, but in a very narrowed way, an isolated love. But love is existence. And therefore, we can't protect it any more than we should protect our existence. It doesn't need our protection. And neither does love. And the more we try to protect it, the more confused we are and the further from love we stray. Feel it. It's in the room. You see, when you feel, when you, when we understand that we're stepping out of a cocoon, we're stepping into something, something inviting, something connected, something heart-centered. We're stepping out of our individuation, our isolation, our you and the me's. You and me's will never get along. Never. Does two million years of our history have to, we have to go two million more? It's already there. That's it. It doesn't work. This perception is not working. So let us try to move ourselves into the correct one. If a distorted perception doesn't work, we might try one that isn't distorted. And each of us have the capacity, if we have the sincerity, to do just that. It is not lacking in any of you. If it is, I would like you to ask, or if you feel it is, I would like you to ask, do I exist? If you can honestly say no to that, I would ask you to leave the retreat. Cause your extra weight. <laughs> None of you can deny that fact. But the question I leave you with How far could it be from me in this moment? How far away could it be in this moment? How much travel do I really have to go? How much do I really have to search out in order to honor, to own, to acknowledge, and to fully release and liberate my own existence? Okay, all. Thank you. Can we sit for a minute or two?
that should welcome something from you. Whether you're a beginner or this is your 40th course, it doesn't matter. You are never any closer or farther away from your existence from day one to day 4,000. That's how close it is. That's how accessible. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.